We're in the midst of uh, a series on the life of David. And David, if you don't know, was Israel's greatest king. God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, had a king, and the pinnacle, really, of the kingship was David. But David was not the end of the kingship. In fact, that line would continue. The reason, really, that we'd like to spend time studying David is because there's a deep connection between David and Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, which means the anointed one. You'll hear that phrase even in the passage I'm going to read to us this morning. And it's that Messiah, great David's greater son, that has taken the throne in heaven and is our king and leads us. He is the one that calls us to come even before him and under his word this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel. I'm in chapter 24. We're skipping around a little bit in David's life, and, and I would really would encourage you uh, to follow along and read through First and Second Samuel on your own. One, it's going to make things a little easier on Sundays, but the, really the biggest thing is these are great stories, and it's really fun stuff happening. So I'd encourage you even to dig into First and Second Samuel on your own. All right, First Samuel chapter 24, hear now God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told... Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your word, and we ask that you would open to us, it to us today. I know we've all come in a lot of different ways, some ready and eager to hear what you have to say, some really not sure what we're feeling this morning. Maybe some of us were even drug here. Lord, you know where we are. You know the state of our hearts. So we ask that you would meet us in those places that you would show us, Lord, the way that your anointed has acted for us, that we might come to worship and bow down today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to talk this morning uh, about decision-making, about making decisions. In a lot of ways, that's what this passage is about. I was a campus minister for four years, meaning I pastored college students uh, and very oftentimes, I would have conversations with these students about big decisions in their lives. It felt like every day somebody was struggling with some big decision. And it's big stuff, right? What am I going to study? What am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to marry? Big kind of decisions. But oftentimes, these students would just get so knotted up with these decisions. They would be so overwhelmed with these decisions that they just didn't know how to proceed. 
And many times the reasons that they would get so knotted up is because they thought that the weight of the world, maybe even the weight of God's eternal plans, were riding on their decisions. What if I, what if I choose the wrong one? What if I choose to date the wrong girl and she's not the one? What if I choose the wrong major and it's not the one that God has for me? I used to think like this in college too, that there was a map and if I kind of got off the map, then God's eternal plans were just scattered and it was all over for me. I had ruined his will for my life. Well, it was usually a great relief for these students, as it was for me when I heard this news, to tell them that God's eternal plans do not rest on their decisions. God's eternal plans do not rest on the decisions that you and I make. He is actually in control, and He is loving, and we can trust Him in that. If you've never seen the book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, you should get it. If you've ever struggled with decision-making, it's a great one. He basically says, listen, if you are obeying the Lord in what he, how He has revealed Himself in Scripture, then just go ahead and go make some decisions. Marry someone if, she, if you are equally yoked. Find a job if it's not illegal. Live somewhere with somebody or nobody, but just do something and stop with all of the waiting for the lightning bolts from heaven and the liver shivers and the fleeces and all of that stuff and just go and do something. That's freeing, isn't it? It takes a lot of weight off of our shoulders to realize that Jesus is in control and I'm not, and so I have the freedom to actually do the things that he's called me to. But there is actually a little bit more nuance to that, I think, that we see in this passage. Because Jesus is in control, because Jesus is in loving and full control of our lives and all of the world, because we can rest in that, we actually can go about making decisions that are done in God's way and on God's timing, and from the place in which He's called us. And that's a lot of what we see in this passage. We see it exemplified really in David. His trust in the Lord's sovereign care and love and mercy for him so that he can actually make decisions that are working in God's way and not his way, that are working in God's timing and not his own timing, and that are actually working from the place in which God has put him. Let me recap this story just really quickly and give you a little bit more background. Remember, David, if you were here a few weeks ago, has been anointed as the next king of Israel. Samuel, who is God's prophet, has actually come and he's anointed David even though he was the least likely among all of his brothers. And he has been told and his family has been told, you are going to be the next king. But he's not the king yet. Saul is still the king. And Saul is dealing with his own sin. He's actually been rejected by the Lord because he has been unfaithful to God. But he's still in power, and he's still on the throne, and he's still having to deal with things. And instead of, uh, of actually taking hold of what God has currently called him to, his own rejection and his own envy is actually clouding his view, and all of his life is really set on one goal, and that is getting rid of David. Here's the one who's next in line. He's the one who's going to take his family line onto the throne and not mine. And so my job is no longer to lead God's people, but to kill the one who God has actually called to do that. 
And so Saul spends actually the latter part of his, his uh, kingship hunting David down and trying to get rid of him. And that's where we are actually in the story. Saul's gone out into, into the wilderness area. David's on the run. He's literally been forced out of the city of Jerusalem, and he's out in the wilderness, and we find him actually hiding in a cave because Saul has gathered 3,000 warriors to come and hunt David and his men down. And David and his men are hiding in this cave, and they're resting, and they're relaxing, and wouldn't you know it, Saul needs to relieve himself, and he walks into this very cave. And this is the beautiful, you know, ironic tension in the story, is here's Saul all alone by himself, unprotected, in this cave, surrounded by David and his men. And David's men think this, huh, lightning bolt from heaven, God has spoken He has spoken clearly, surely this is what God has given you. He's laid your enemy right before you. Because his men, remember, they're with David, they're being hunted too, right? So there's a little bit of selfish motivation here. And they're thinking, okay, the one who wants to kill you and kill us, by the way, is right here and we can take him out. He's unprotected, he's unsuspecting. We can get rid of this thing quickly. God has called you to the throne, and the only thing that's in the way is the one who's sitting right here who we have the chance to now take out. Remember, though, David is in some tension. He's been called by God to be the king. But what is he going to do? What is he going to do with what seems like this lightning bolt from heaven that's just been dropped in his lap? Well, his answer is fascinating. It totally and utterly confuses his men, and maybe it confuses us sometimes. His answer is, I'm going to trust in the Lord's care, and I'm going to work in God's way, on God's timing, from the place in which God has put me. See, God had told him he was going to be king, but God had not told him to kill the current king. God had told David what was coming up next. But God had not told David to take a hold of the way that he got it. God had not told David the timing. And isn't it so tempting for us that especially when we see something good and we think, okay, here's the end. It's good. I know it is. Now I'm going to get it in any way that I can. And we think if the end is good, then it really doesn't matter the means in which I get there. Because if the end is good, then I can get there the way that I want. I can get there the speed that I want. I can get there any way that I want. But that's really not what it means to be called to rest in God's loving care and to make decisions out of that. Do you see the trust that's there in David? What David has said is, I'm going to put my faith and my trust in the Lord, in his plan, rather than my own ability to take hold of it myself. And Let's just be honest. David is putting himself at risk here. He is letting go the guy that wants to kill him. Later on in the story, if you keep reading these verses, he actually tells Saul that he, that, he was, that he almost took his life and that he spared him. Saul knows that David has spared him. Saul knows where David is. Saul knows that David is still alive. David is in as great or maybe even greater risk than he was to begin with. But he is resting in God's loving and sovereign care And because of that, he is able to act in God's way and act on God's timing and act from the place in which God had called him. 
let me give you uh, another example of this from my life. Actually, let's first talk about this, this piece, the Lord's anointed, because it's repeated here a couple of times. What does that mean? What does it mean when David says, I'm not going to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the Lord's anointed was his representative. So the king was actually the representative of God. He was not elected by the people. He was declared to be leader by God, anointed by God's prophet, Samuel. And so the king is actually standing really in the place of God. He is the representative for God. And to lay a hand on the representative is actually to act against the one whom he represents. So what David is saying is, listen, to actually act against God's anointed is to act against God himself. But again, David is also saying, I'm going to trust the way that God has chosen to lead his people right now. And you know, even if he's not a really good king, he is my king. Well, that's something that can hit home for us, right? Even if he's not a very good fill-in-the-blank, he is still the one that God has chosen. I think many of us have wrestled with this, whether it's even though I don't really like the president, even though I don't really like my boss, even though I don't really enjoy my spouse, even though I may not like my church, this is the place that God has put me. So what am I to do? And what David does is he says in really amazing faith here, he says God is either going to renew Saul or he's going to remove Saul, but that's his job and it's not my job. I'm going to trust his way of acting on his schedule and I'm going to trust that he's got control of it and I don't have to take control of it. Now, let me just clarify. If you are living with a physically abusive spouse, you should leave your house and please come talk to me. If you are working in a job in which your boss is asking you to do something illegal or immoral, you should probably quit your job. But those are extreme examples. Most of the time, we live in that gray area of what does it mean for me to live with things that aren't really right? And even though he's a bad boss, he's still my boss. <laughs> and even though it's a bad environment, it's still the place where God has put me. So how do I act in accordance to how God has called me to act on his schedule from the place that he's put me? We had uh, an opportunity to answer this question uh, in our family not long ago. Uh, we needed a new car. And we needed to replace this car because we had lost a car. And, and, and I had my mind really just kind of fixed on this end. We need a car. Now that's a fine goal. We, we wanted a car, it was a fine thing to want a car, that's okay. But my mind was so fixed on that that I actually kind of blocked out everything else that was going on in our family. I blocked out any emotional process that was needed to take place in the car buying experience. I blocked out really anybody else's input on this and just had my mind so focused on I'm going to get the thing that I feel like we need to get and push for that as much as I can. Joy had to remind me very gently that I was not actually waiting on the Lord and trusting in Him. See, that's the shortcut process. I see something that seems good, and so I'm going to shortcut the process to get what I want in my way, on my schedule, from whatever place. But the gospel way of doing this, in my case, was actually to take account of my own emotions, which were riddled with anxiety and fear, 
to take account of others' emotions, to take account of the other people interacting in this whole situation and say, okay, Lord, how have you then called me to step forward in this in your way at your timing? It would have been a lot better had I just moved a little more slowly. Here's another example. A woman that I got to hear speak one time named Diane Langberg. She is a psychiatrist and a counselor, works mostly uh, with people who have experienced extreme trauma and abuse. And Dr. Langberg, as she was speaking, was recounting a story that has really just stuck with me. She was talking about being on a plane coming back from a third world country, and a third world country in which uh, there were many young women uh, in forced slavery and, and being trafficked. And she was dealing with some of those women and with some of the organizations that were dealing with them, and she was providing some, some expertise that really, she uh, you know, is a handful of people in the United States that have this kind of expertise. She was the right person for it. But she was talking about how she was getting on the plane to leave and go back home, to go back to her comfortable home, and feeling the weight of the hundreds of women that she wasn't able to help the hundreds of women that actually could use her care in the way that she particularly even gives it. And then she said this that has stuck with me for so long. She said, I realize, though, that the need and the call are not the same. That you can realize the need and not be called to it. Boy, how often do we have to make that distinction in our minds? How often am I tempted to look at somebody else's life or family and say, man, I actually can really help them. I know what I can do. I need to go and find them and grab a hold of their shoulders and say, I've got a wonderful plan for your life if you would just sit down and listen to me. Or another organization that you're not part of to see, boy, if things were just going a different way, I could insert myself into that situation and make everything right. But the truth is, God has not called me to that place and to insert myself into a place in which God has not called me is actually an act of distrust of the Lord. See, to rest in God's sovereign and loving care and control is to say, God's the one who's going to make all things new, not me. And if he puts me in the position to actually take part in that, then I get to do that joyously. But I don't go looking for places for me to be the one who is the redeemer of all things. One of my seminary professors would have us say, every time we came to class, we'd start, he'd, we'd repeat after me, I am not the Christ. And we'd say it three times, I am not the Christ. Using the words of John the Baptist that he knew that we needed our own heads to hear because our tendency as pastors is to think that. Let me give you one more example from the scriptures and it's from Jesus' life. All three of of the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus' temptation. Okay, Satan tempted him, took him out actually in a wilderness place, kind of like where David was, and tempted him with actually some very similar kind of temptations. I want you to just listen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can, but just listen here from the way that Luke tells us about Jesus' temptation. This is Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Understatement of the year. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will just worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I don't know if you heard kind of what that temptation was. It's really kind of buried under there. But Satan's temptation to Jesus is actually to take himself out of God's appointed way and God's appointed time and God's appointed place and to receive glory without suffering. You have power, use it. You're hungry, feed yourself. You have authority, wield it. And what Jesus says is, I am going to remain faithful to the way that God has actually called me. To receive glory by suffering. To receive glory by suffering for others so that they might be glorified. To receive my glory not by wielding my power and working outside of God's will, but by actually working exactly according to His will and His timing from the place in which He has uniquely put me. That's the way Jesus has worked for us. And it's actually through faith in Him that we can begin to make good decisions too that we can begin to actually go about decision-making in a helpful way. So I want to close with this with just some diagnostic questions for us. These are questions that we can ask ourselves when we're in the midst of a decision. And I should have said this at the beginning, but if you were hoping this morning when I said decision-making to get you know, a really clear way of making decisions, I'm sorry, it's not coming this morning. But hopefully this can help us at least ask the questions a little bit better. So it's in three sets, and here's the first set, is kind of the decision diagnostics. And they really just start with some simple things. Is it legal? <laughs> is it loving? Right? What does God's Word say about this decision? Is this something that's sinful? Is this something that is actually working outside of the way that God has clearly revealed what He desires of us? And if that's the case, easy decision. Decision's over. Don't do it. But of course, is it legal or sinful is actually the floor for us, and we're called to move toward the ceiling, which is, is it loving, right? Do not murder is the floor. You don't want to go below the floor. But love your neighbor as yourself is the ceiling. So we're not called to live on the floor, be like, great, I didn't murder anybody today, everything's good. We're actually called to reach for the ceiling to pour ourselves out in love and mercy for our neighbor, so is this decision something that is allowable by God's word? And is it something that is loving to the people around me? There's that first kind of decision diagnostic. But we've got to go a little deeper, I think, into a, a lifestyle diagnostic. Because we don't make decisions in a vacuum. We make decisions in the midst of the lifestyle that we've been called to. So are we in God's word and in prayer regularly? Have we soaked ourselves in the Scripture where we might hear from Him? Have we soaked ourselves in prayer where we might commune with Him? God has actually given us the amazing opportunity to know His will and to talk to Him in prayer, 
to commune with him, to be able to relate with him? Are we taking that opportunity? Now let's take it down even maybe a step deeper, and this is more of a heart diagnostic. Am I anxious or afraid? Is my desire for this decision or is part of my decision-making because I'm anxious about something? I'm just going to tell you, anxiety usually creates bad decisions. Fear usually creates bad decisions. And Jesus has told us that we don't have to fear. He's told us that he is going to care for us. He's told us that he loves us and he's in control of all things and that we can actually run to him when we're anxious and afraid rather than run to a decision that we think is going to ease that pain. And then here's the last one. It's kind of the, uh, the situation diagnostic. Is this my place? Has God actually called me to make this decision? Or am I over-functioning for someone else? Am I moving outside of the place in which God has called me? Is this my place to make this decision? And friends, if you answer all those questions, you're always going to be led back to, again, the Lord's anointed who actually acted exactly according to God's will, exactly according to God's timing. Paul tells us in Romans that at the right time, Jesus came to save sinners. And he acted exactly according to his place, the unique place that he has had among all men in all of creation. The only one who could do it. If you're unfamiliar with Christianity this morning, this is really what we hang our hat on, is that Jesus is the only person who could accomplish salvation for the world, and he has accomplished that by living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death and being raised to new life. And so when we place our faith in him, we belong to him. And he gives us his life. But even more than that, we get to rest in him. We get to rest in his loving and sovereign care. And because of that rest, we get to act according to the way that God would have us act. We get to act according to the schedule and the timing that God would lay out for us. We get to act according to the place in which he's put us. And we get to rest in that. And then we get to just be free to go do something. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the example of King David and most particularly for the work of King David's greater son, Jesus. We thank you for the work that he has done on our behalf and the rest that we have in him. Lord, it is, uh, it is hard to make decisions in this world. I so often find myself failing so, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that you would give us trust in you, that you would take away fear and anxiety, that you would take away the desire to feed ourselves, knowing that you have fed us with everything that we need. And so, Lord, the decisions that we make can be made from a sense of wholeness, not a sense of lack. Lord, we work that in our hearts today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.